0: Creative Sandbox Way Podcast, episode one hundred and ninety-four. Creative Sandbox Way I'm Melissa Dinwiddie, and I believe that life is too short not to express the innate creativity inside of you. So I wrote a book called The Creative Sandbox Way, based around 10 guideposts that I developed to get myself out of creative stuck and back to the sense of playful creativity that I naturally had when I was a four-year-old that book was just the tip of the iceberg. I continue the conversation with this podcast. Let's jump in. Today's guest is actor, improviser, and teacher and world changer, David Koff, who I introduce right off the bat in our conversation. We met last year at the Applied Improvisation Network World Conference in Paris. So uh, without further ado, here is my conversation with David Koff. Enjoy. David Koff has been on or around the stage for over 40 years as an actor, producer, director, and teacher. He's appeared on the TV shows The West Wing and On Sesame Street something that's nearly impossible to pull off. And after over 20 years of professional acting in Los Angeles, David and his wife moved to Portland, Oregon, where he's performed and taught improvisation at Curious Comedy, the Brody Theater, and now to the students of the St. Andrew Nativity Jesuit School. He and his wife, Mary, are expecting their first child this month. November, as we are recording. Yes. I know. I'm so glad I got, I got to have this interview with you before the baby comes.
1: It, yeah. is, it is upon us now.
0: It's upon you now. Yes. Well, yeah. thank you so much for joining me and coming on the podcast. I'm delighted to have you, David.
1: It is my pleasure. I'm very honored that you reached out and wanted to have a conversation with me.
0: Well, I I did want to have a conversation with you because I was so incredibly impressed with your talk, your AinX talk, as they call them at the Applied Improvisation Network World Conference, just this past August in Paris, where we barely met. We exchanged a few sentences at the conference, like on the very last day, but you gave a talk. It was, I don't know, maybe 10 minutes or something but you, you shared a, a really very moving story about using improv at the school where you, you teach. And I was wondering if you would be willing to share a little bit about what you do and how improv has affected the kids and, and basically what you shared in a nutshell in that talk, if you would mind sharing that here.
1: Not a problem, and I would love to. And, and since I won't be able to give you the entire talk, would it be okay to let folks know that I've posted the talk yeah. and they can see the entire thing themselves at my website, which is davidcoff.com. And if you click up on the improv link, you'll be able to see the keynote presentation. But um, yeah, I got really lucky about two or so years ago, a friend of mine who knew that I did comedy, was playing at the same music night that I attend on a monthly basis. She got a job working at the school and said, hey, listen, we've got volunteers that come in and, and work with the kids in their area and field of expertise. Would you want to come in and teach improv? And I thought, Well, sure. That would be great. I was already teaching adults and the opportunity to work with kids would be awesome. I said, tell me about the school. And she said, well, it's middle school. So sixth, seventh and eighth graders. And I thought, perfect. This is exactly when everything is changing in the body. You've got your hormones, you've got your puberty. It's socially awkward. Everything is changing. And I believe improv is great medicine. So I thought, what a better time to be able to teach some of these skills. And I pretty much thought I was going to go in and teach these kids how to get up on stage and be funny. (laughs) So I go to class and I should mention this is in Northeast Portland and it's a Jesuit school. So it's completely free for all three years. They've got 70 students and it primarily serves the communities of color. So most of my students are, uh, Latin, and uh, I'd say like a third are Black or African immigrants, uh, literally families that have moved to the United States from uh, Ethiopia, Somalia, Eritrea, and then um, a lot of Latin Americans as well. So the school serves the community that needs it most. So here I come in as a white man, teaching students who don't look like me. And in improv, you'd normally having to give suggestions for scenes if you are a teacher. Here's the scenario, and then we're going to improvise around it. And I found pretty quickly that I was running out of things to say that I thought the kids would sort of culturally understand or be familiar with. I didn't want to talk from my perspective. I wanted to talk from their perspective. And so one day I just said, okay, you You tell me what is this scene about? What's something that's going on in your neighborhood or family or school or community that you want this scene to be about and these other kinds of suggestions started being offered carjacking, being held up at gunpoint, racism, police brutality, and one girl said domestic violence because she was um recently living in a home where she got to see and experience that and so the notion of well i'm going to teach these kids how to get on stage and be funny completely shifted and i realized that what we really needed was an opportunity for these kids to be able to talk about these very difficult issues but in a way that created opportunity agreement listening and suddenly it became applied improv mm-hmm. all of these great tools that improvisation teach eye contact careful listening finding agreement those were the exact ingredients that were necessary to create this recipe of facilitating a dialogue with these kids about the topics that they wanted to talk about and so Although some of my classes do eventually get on stage and perform, even those performances are based around this notion of what does the community care about and what can we ask the kids in their improv to discuss on stage publicly using the skills that, that they have learned. So these are not shows or classes meant to delight or entertain or to be funny. They are these deeper discussions that are meant to inform and to invite in and to give the kids what a lot of our uh, current society especially seeks to take away from them, their, their own voice, their own story, and their own ability to tell their own story. And frankly, as I've learned, their own ability to know that they can tell their own story as opposed to other people telling it for them. So and I teach on Tuesday, so yesterday's class was a was a prime example we We got the suggestion one of the kids suggested uh, racial police brutality so we we worked with that as a topic and I asked the kids to create a diorama and each person had to come forward and state kind of who they were in the scene. We were going to showcase what the problem was and they they got it really quickly. One kid came out and was a police officer harassing uh, a black man. The other student came out and was the black uh, man getting harassed. One person came out as a, uh, a, a witness who didn't want to get between the police and another person, uh, and so kind of turned their back. One person was the police uh, officer's partner, who was calling into headquarters, and they, they created this beautiful diorama. Then I said, okay, great, so you've done an excellent job at portraying what the problem is. Now, go back, and we're gonna come in in the same order, but instead, I want you to portray the solution. Silence. So we just sat in silence for some number of minutes. They didn't know what to do. So I simply asked them, okay, well, what's the solution for racial police brutality? We don't know. I said, okay, well, think about it a different way. If your friend happens to be in a wheelchair and he or she needs to get to the top of the ramp, but they can't, how do you help them? Oh, we know that one. You help push your friend up the ramp, right? Uh, If you're in the cafeteria at lunch and your friend trips and falls down, how do you help them? Oh, we go over and we help pick them up. Right. So if you see uh, racial police uh, harassment, what can you do? Oh, got it. And sort of giving these sort of smaller building block examples, they then started to create a, a diorama of a... Um, an officer who was protecting uh, a black citizen from another harassing officer. So instead of being the one doing the harassing, it was uh, assuming the role of the local police officer who was fending off a a second aggressive Mm -hmm. officer and sort of the community then rallying behind the the person. And it it was beautiful. It just took them a while because this notion of not just owning the story as it is problematic, but owning the story as it might be a solution is super important.
0: Wow. Wow. What what struck me so much in hearing you talk about that is what what I know about improv from experiencing it and, and just hearing you share that is how improv enables people to experience empathy because through creating that diorama, they have to take on, you know, all those different characters, right? So each person who steps forward has to be the character of the police officer who's doing the harassing, as well as the person who's being harassed, as well as the person who's turning their back, as well as, you know, all those different characters People have to take on those roles and it's kind of impossible to do improv without experiencing empathy. What do you think about that?
1: I agree. And it's also impossible to do improv that tells a story without building on what someone else has started. So, you know, if, person number 1 comes in and says I am an officer harassing a black man. I I wouldn't expect a student to come in who has studied with me for any number of weeks and say I'm a bird. <laughs> right because that's got nothing to do with the first offer. Someone is going to have to come in knowing that the first person has established that they are an officer who is harassing a black citizen. Right. They're going to need to add some information to that and so Not surprisingly, the second student came in as that black citizen that was being harassed. So empathy, careful listening, and eye contact, and a deep understanding that, especially between the students and the teacher, hey, we're we're not going to actually be violent, but we're going to portray us as a moment in time. So we're not actually going to physically strike or hurt one another, but we're going to create what that looks like. And we can do it safely and we can do it together and then talk about it afterwards if you want to. And yeah. so it's not just empathy with the characters. I think it's also, it teaches them empathy with one another as humans having to do this very scary exercise Yeah, in a class with, again, and it's not like it's a bad thing, but I'm an outsider in their community. Most of the teachers and administrators at the school don't look like me. I'm pleased as punch to be there and I'm not bothered or embarrassed at all, but I do feel like my job is to make it about them and not about me. And most of the time I succeed. Sometimes I fail because I'm still a silly human and I make mistakes, but yeah, I've kind of gone far afield of your question about empathy, but it does all tie together for me.
0: Yeah. Well, You, you spoke earlier about the power of giving voice to their stories. And I think that is so powerful, just acknowledging that these things are happening in their lives and that they have a place to, to bring that and, you know, to, to process that in a really powerful way where it's not, it's not sort of shoved under the, under the rug It's not, you know, there's no, I don't know, you know, shame around it or or trying to hide it or anything like that. It's brought out into the open where we can talk about it and we can acknowledge that it exists and and then talk about, like, what what can we do about this? Yes, police brutality exists. What can we do about it? Right.
1: And then we use our imagination to see what we might do about it. There's no wrong answer. There is only what are the rules that you've learned around how we improvise. So we we pay very careful attention by listening. We always make eye contact. If someone starts a story, we add one piece of information to the existing story. So these sort of core skills that they're taught in the first half of our uh, 10-week series, which I've Uh, created for them, they then get to apply those skills to this much deeper emotional, social, political world that is going on about them. And by that time, they're starting to pick up the language from playing all of the games. And it's really powerful to watch. And I have to be careful because I never know when a student makes a suggestion that they have themselves personally had to deal with, or if they know somebody else who has dealt with, or if it's just something they've seen on the news. So I have to maintain like, almost like a therapist, like just a really open, accepting, okay, domestic violence, great, let's work with that. And instead of expressing any surprise or shock, criticism, judgment, I simply say, okay, that's what you want to talk about. We will talk about it. And I just create some safe parameters, and then off we go. Then, after class, if I'm concerned that maybe the student has themselves experienced this, uh, I'll have a private chat with them, and if necessary, check in with the school uh, counselor just to make sure everybody's healthy and dealing with it the best they can. Wow. Wow. You had no idea what you're stepping into, did you? No, no. But I mean, it's so great. It's so great because it's real. It's so great because
0: it's real. It's
1: absolutely real. And I'm getting to, I believe, give people training to help embrace and tell their stories.
0: Yeah. I'm curious, had you ever done applied improv before or had, had you always had your teaching experience been, or your, you know, teaching slash facilitation experience been teaching like performance improv?
1: Yeah. Great question. Uh, and it was all performance improv. Oh, wow. And when I got to the school, I, I thought it would be the same with the kids and it very clearly wasn't. And I, was fortunate enough to see that in the moment and then give them what they needed versus what I thought I wanted to teach them. Which
0: is an improv skill.
1: Right. (laughs) How do you (laughs) seamlessly shift on the fly? So, I mean, I honestly, and and we talked about this, uh, not you and I, but as a conference, there was some talk about this this summer, right? This notion of, well, you you wouldn't want someone being a facilitator who's not really experienced at being a facilitator. And I heard a lot of people kind of whooping and, and, and hollering in support of that. And I get it. And I think trained professionals sort of are the ones who achieve the, the pinnacle of that career, whatever that career is. But I, I also... I wouldn't want someone who is only a facilitator and not themselves an improviser teaching applied improv. And by the way, I'm not saying I'm an expert. I'm not, I'm, I'll just out myself. You know, I've been on stage for about 40 years. That doesn't make me an expert at teaching applied improv. So I want to be really clear about that, but that ability to shift whatever it is you're doing into something else that is Needed or wanted by those in front of whom you're standing is an absolutely necessary skill.
0: Yeah. Well, it, it, what I'm thinking as I sit here is that you really, it, it, it's just, I don't know what the right word is, whether it's meta or what, but you were the perfect person at the, at the right, you were the right person at the right time for this particular task because you had all this training and improv (laughs) because not everybody would have been able to shift to give the kids what they needed in that moment. And what they needed in that moment was somebody who could shift and give them what they needed.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm glad that I ran out of ideas that day (laughs) because that's what it was. I felt like, um, okay, I'm, I'm stuck. I don't know what to suggest them to do for this scene, Uh, all right, I'll just kick it to them. And then, oh, right, right, this isn't about me and my suggestions at all, it's about them and their suggestions and what they wanna talk about.
0: Yeah, and so when you realize that things were shifting and oh, wow, this is really becoming applied improv, not a, you know, a class teaching these kids how to be funny on stage. Were you already aware of applied improv that that whole sort of world existed?
1: I knew that there were people who took improv to different corporations. I knew that there were people who did trainings using improv i never thought of that as applied improv i just thought of that as longtime improvisers bringing fun short form improv games to companies so that they could all have some fun together and help create a little bit of communication and teamwork which are you know two of the things that improv is great at teaching whether you are a performer or not and then, about a year and a half ago, not long after I started teaching, I had friends tell me about Applied Improv Network. Like, "Wait, there's a whole network of people that do this. <laughs> I just like, "Yeah, yeah. oh, and you know the, and the president lives in Portland. The new president lives in Portland, and maybe you'll meet her one day, and I ended up meeting her and inviting her to uh, perform on stage at a show that I do from time to time. And, We got to cross-pollinate, but no, I I didn't know anything about the organization, and I was absolutely stunned that I was invited to speak, because I mentioned earlier, I'm a novice at this. I'm not a novice at performing. I'm not a novice at understanding how improv can help humans, and I am not really worried when I step in front of the kids. And, and teach them because I've been in or around the theater for four decades. But to go to Paris this summer and to meet people who have made careers out of this, they make their livelihood going around, bringing improv to companies, to nonprofits, to adults, to kids, to military veterans. I, I mean, I was blown away. And because I've had this bizarre dual track career in the arts and in technology, I came away this summer thinking, oh, this might actually be a career. (laughs) That not only I I might be able to help support my my growing family by doing, but something that I'll, I'll never go to bed thinking, what a crappy day. What a shitty life. I don't want to get up and do this tomorrow. And that's how it was working in technology at some of these large companies that I worked at. Mm. Monday mornings were the worst. Mm. And there's not a day that I come home from my class with these kids that I think, oh boy, that was awful. Some days are hard because I'm dealing with middle schoolers. And anyone who's ever spent (laughs) time teaching middle schoolers, And thats exactly why I'm laughing right now, you know the egos and mood swings and hormones and and they're doing incredible stuff despite that, so it's a joy and the notion of there's an entire support network of people who have been doing this particular thing that I can learn from and take workshops with and ask advice from or go on a podcast to meet. <laughs> That to me is a miracle. If you'd if you'd asked me a year and a half ago, hey, do you think this is all going to happen in eighteen months? I would have said you're crazy.
0: Wow! So oh, that's really cool. I didn't realize that the Applied Improvisation Network was so new to you. Yeah. Wow.
1: And so- as a result of the school that I'm working at, the on the other end of literally on the other end of town, and then sort of economically on the other side of the tracks, if you will. The most expensive, most prestigious private school in Portland is now uh, bringing me in to teach their middle schoolers oh, wow. and a uh, school in Spokane brought me there and now I'm starting to get interest from corporate clients and just booked a, a corporate client for the first time so fantastic I don't know what's happening wow and do you still have the 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 tech job as well no. No, um, I was working at Nike for two and a half years, and after two and a half years, my my contract was up, and I I was also very much up, and I <laughs> and I left. I now write about technology. I do some private consulting, but uh, mostly I'm just putting a ton of time into teaching, getting my curriculum polished and fixed, and meeting and talking and networking with people who think they might want to incorporate some curriculum like this in their school and raising money and applying for grants to help train others to do what I do.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. So you're really turning that into your main gig.
1: Trying to. Great. It's at the very beginning, but it's begun.
0: Oh, good for you. Well, I can imagine that that combined with some corporate stuff to fund that, to help fund <laughs> that, that that could be a nice, nice business for you.
1: I, I hope it, I hope it will be because the, the more I talk to people who do this line of work, yourself included, I, I, I'm not really meeting a lot of unhappy or unfulfilled people. I am mean, <laughs> I, I mean, the, the conference kind of speaks for itself. Everyone was. Delightful, fun, open, kind, happy, vulnerable, willing to share, give advice, ask for advice. I mean, clearly, these people are onto something.
0: Yeah, it's true. The Applied Improvisation Network. Well, I I only went to the conference. My first conference was the previous year, twenty seventeen.
1: So this is only your second time.
0: Hmm. Yeah. So I, so we both know Yael Shai who has been to every single conference of which there have been, I don't know, 15 or however many, I don't know how, how many there have been.
1: That sounds about right.
0: Yeah. And so I've heard about, I've known Yael for five or six years. And so I've heard about the conferences for a while. I perform with Yael. We're in a group together. Um, But it took until Irvine to finally get to one of the conferences, uh-huh. but my experience was like you. I've it's improvisers uh, and per, in particular applied improvisers are just so generous and open and willing to be vulnerable and just the environment the the vibe was so amazing. <laughs> It's like, I want to be, I want to, I just want to soak in this.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Just want to be around it all the time. It was really great. I went home feeling like a different person and like I had found my tribe.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think there, there's something about improv. Kat Coppett calls, I, I interviewed her a while back after the first conference and she calls it improv, the gym for life.
1: Oh Yeah. And there's something,
0: yeah. And there's something about, like I said, improv. You can't do improv without empathy and listening, like you said, and of course the eye contact, and it 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 changes people.
1: Yep. In a really positive way. And I I think teaching it, and you're you're more of a facilitator than a teacher, correct?
0: Yeah, that's, that's correct. I haven't yet taught improv as a, as a class. That's right. Yeah. I,
1: I think that there, I, I don't ask because I really think there's much of a difference. I, I think there's a, an, another, after uh, performing for as long as I have on stage, the stepping off of the stage and then teaching and coaching people who both wanted to get on stage. And in in the case with my Younger students now helping to teach them what I'm just calling life skills also deepened this other part of me. It it made me even more vulnerable, um, both as a performer and as a a human. Uh, Because now, uh, it's not like I didn't do this before, but now if I'm in a performance, I very rarely feel the need to have to be funny. Mm. Oh, here's the perfect funny thing to say. And of course, you know, as far as improv performance, you don't really hear the phrase improv without the word comedy following. Mm -hmm. But an improvised drama, oh, that's really thrilling and Mm -hmm. spine tingling and kind of gets me on the edge of my seat because now someone is willing to talk about stuff that's real. Yeah. Yeah. And so I now have a small coterie of performers here in Portland that I get to play with. We're still able to be funny, but the shows themselves aren't comedies. Their comedy comes out of these very real moments. So yeah, my teaching um, and my facilitating with these kids has ended up making me a really, a better human and performer.
0: Wow. That's so cool. And actually that's, that's my favorite kind of improv. I my most of my training has been with Bats in San oh, Francisco yeah. and they they teach that way that the the funny comes out of being real and the the comedy just emerges from
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know you're it just emerges rather than trying to be funny and trying to come up with something clever. The comedy just can't help but emerge from situations that happen on stage and improvised dramas or whatever. Those are, those are really my favorite. Those real moments that just somehow go sideways.
1: (laughs) And are you still uh, performing or working or studying at bats?
0: Yeah, not on a, I'm not in a, a class right now, but I have groups that I perform with periodically. Yeah. Well,
1: one of my Portland friends now kind of, I think has, taken up a permanent job there Tracy Burns she's a really good facilitator oh, yeah. and a really good teacher and a very warm uh, human so if you have not had the chance to meet her or take a workshop from her or get on stage with her do it.
0: Oh great. Thanks for the thanks for the recommendation. She's awesome. So how how did you get into theater and improv in the first place?
1: Oh god. Um I'm a lifer. You know, I started performing on stage when I was 6. Wow. My dad was really into Broadway when he was growing up, you know. He he started going to see Broadway shows when he was 8 or 9. His first playbill that he had saved was gentlemen prefer blondes?
0: Oh my gosh!
1: He had a very big uh, playbill collection from all of the the Broadway shows that he he had seen over the course of his life. So of course, unlike some families growing up, the music we played on road trips or in the house there was a lot of Broadway. So I kind of got very quickly acculturated to stage and song. So it didn't take long before I started doing it myself, and then wanting to do it professionally, which of course alarmed the shit out of my <laughs> somewhat conservative upper middle-class Jewish parents. And, um, you know, started getting leads in, in high school and then started writing and performing comedy in, in college with a, a, a an old, old college comedy troupe. But a lot of the stuff that delighted me most because all of this stuff was scripted yeah. was especially in rehearsal, intentionally going off script mm. uh, much to the chagrin of whoever was directing <laughs> high school and much to the delight of the other actors I was on stage with. And in college, much to the delight of everybody on stage and off, we started using improv before I really knew that it was called improv. We started using this kind of goofing around mechanism to improve the stuff we had written. And one thing led to another. When I graduated college, I moved out to Los Angeles. My uh, roommates were people I'd gone to college with. They said, you need to go study over here at this place called the Groundlings. So in 1992, I think I took my first class there. Loved it. Got it immediately. It was like the simultaneously the Zen meditation and crack cocaine of comedy. (laughs) And by that, in case I have offended anybody, I will mean (laughs) it. So when you, when you finally get it and you, you let go and you trust your instincts, it's, it's incredibly addictive. You just, you enter a a flow state and you just want to keep doing it. And so I've been doing it now for 27 years after the groundlings. I studied for over a decade with an alumni of the Groundlings named Stan Wells. And he had a theater in Los Angeles called The Empty Stage. Uh, I studied at a place called Acme Theater. And then when all was said and done, I studied with Stan's longtime teacher, a guy named Bill Stein Bill's a, a showrunner and a writer. And uh, he and his wife both uh, worked on uh, Cheers and just shoot me and a bunch of other um, notable TV shows. And he just kind of had this masterclass. In the last two years, I was in Los Angeles. I was invited to sit in on a class where I was one of the youngest people. I was at the time 43, 44. So to walk into an improv workshop with people who were in their 50s, 60s, and early 70s, who'd been doing it for almost twice as long as I'd been doing it and I and you know you'd recognize half the people in the class because they do consistent character work on TV but to just continue to practice craft with these people was such an honor and so much fun so when i came to portland no, that doesn't really exist here that that level of community who have all been practicing craft for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. There are a few people here in town who have been improvising for at least 20 years. And those are the people I like to work with because it's just so easy. Yeah. But yeah, that's kind of how it all started and evolved for me. Wow. That's so cool. What about you? Did you start when you were young? Did you find it later in life? Were you like a moody teenager who decided, <laughs> screw it, I'm going to do theater. Fuck all y'all.
0: No, no. I came to it much, much later. I've only been doing improv since 2013. Oh, goodness. You're yeah. I'm I'm a newbie. Yep. Yeah. I I did a couple of workshops that were sort of writing slash improv with Ann Randolph and she calls him write write your life or something like that and then i started taking classes with bats mm. in 2013 and i knew at the time that that i i wanted i had this idea that i wanted to somehow get into bringing creativity and play into corporate somehow. But I, I, it was sort of this vague, hazy notion of how that might work. Mm. So I had this sort of dual idea of I knew I wanted to, I'd been wanting to do improv for years, but I'd never figured out how to make that happen. I just, I thought it was far away in San Francisco. And and then I also knew I, I, I knew that it was a kind of a tool for my toolkit took my first class at bats and was instantly hooked. And I just kept taking classes and taking classes and taking classes. And then just started performing and kind of fell into a few different groups that have then, you know, they sort of dissolve and reform in various different shapes and stuff. As they do. Yeah. As they do. I wish I had more opportunity to perform where I live. There's not as much going on as in San Francisco. Where but, where do you live? I live in Silicon Valley, about oh, okay. an hour south of San Francisco. And there's just not nearly as much going on down here. I don't
1: know what you're talking about. Silicon Valley is known internationally for its <laughs> improvisation.
0: Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> there are some people who are trying to, you know, trying to up the game down here. But, you know, yes. it's a bit N- slow.
1: So. Nobody's funnier than Elon Musk. Nobody. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Right. And, uh, that good old head of Facebook. So. (laughs) Right. Yep. I have a partner that we, we get together and practice every weekend. Yael, who we mentioned earlier, Mm -hmm. she is sort of the director of a group that does long form Hollywood style musicals set in the jazz era. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So we perform every so often, any, anywhere from 20 minutes to 45 minutes. Those are, those are pretty fun. How we'll many a... people are in that group
1: and what is the name of it?
0: Well, the group is called All That Jazz. And Perfect. Yes. And the number of people <laughs> is constantly changing. The core group is right now, I think it's five of us. Between four and five, depending on what day you're talking. Yeah, that's
1: cool it's a it's a good quorum to kind of anchor other people coming in and guesting and learning the format and kind of getting the hang of things and
0: yeah yeah and it's a lot of fun i i i really love it and i tell people all the time that if there's one thing you could do to you know benefit your life your business just everything it's improv
1: I, I couldn't agree more. Improv <laughs> makes better humans, and it's yeah. really good medicine.
0: Ah, oh, soundbite if ever there was one. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. So well, we are coming to the top of the hour. So I wanted to ask. Uh, I think you brought something cool to share.
1: That's true. Um, although Melissa, it is not a tangible thing. It's just a. Oh, it, it doesn't Sorry. have to be a tangible thing. However. Uh, for about 20 years, I've been producing a theater troupe called Fake Radio. We recreate old radio broadcasts from basically 1938 to 1958, the golden age of the art form, including all of the original commercials that aired. But since we've been talking about improv all this time, We go off script, so we kind of do this very loving parody of these old radio shows. And for the past six months, I've been um, producing a series of performances that just concluded here in Portland, Oregon. We did one show at the Alberta Rose Theater to about 200 people. We did for the 80th anniversary of the War of the Worlds broadcast in October of 1938 a very true-to-life recreation of that radio broadcast. And we opened up the show with a very sort of, again, lovingly sometimes improvised parody of Ray Bradbury's Mars is Heaven. All of that just got posted to our website, which is fakeradio.net, because it's not actually real radio. It is... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> radio on the stage. So it is fake radio. So fake radio.net. And if you, if you uh, go and click on the audio button, the very first show listed for you to listen to is our show from October 22nd at the Alberta Rose. Um,
0: oh, that's fantastic. I will also put the, the link to that in the show notes. So even when it's not the very first show anymore, when time has passed, People will still be able to find it. Well, that's great. Show notes from this podcast.
1: And for your uh, listeners and friends and fans who are aficionados of comedy, our guest star is a gentleman named Phil Proctor. Phil's a member of, for us comic types, a legendary comedy troupe called the Firesign Theater. Um, (gasps) Oh, wow. And Phil uh, came up to Portland with his wife, Melinda, and they performed with us for... Three shows, and we were very honored uh, to have him. And uh, I can't wait to share pictures uh, on our website from the performances as well. So yeah, FakeRadio.net, go check it out.
0: That is definitely something cool. I am super excited to check that out. I, by the way, I love that golden age of radio. When I was in seventh grade, my English social studies teacher, whatever he was, Mr. Siders (laughs) would bring in tapes of stories from the radio. I mean, they were like from that era and oh my God, it just like it did. Those have are like tattooed on my brain. I absolutely love them. And I'm constantly looking for podcasts and things that are like that. So I may be a fangirl of fake radio.net.
1: Oh, perfect. (laughs) Well, you'll, you'll get a kick out of some of the people I've been able to uh, get up on stage with us. It's uh, been an amazing thing to be able to perform with some of my comedy and acting heroes.
0: Oh my God. That just sounds so incredibly cool. Next time I'm in Portland, I am so looking
1: you up. (laughs) You got it.
0: So cool. Well, my something cool, yeah, my something cool this week is an Instagram account that I recently discovered called Drawings of Dogs. It's this guy, they're actually, he started out doing drawings of dogs, but now they're drawings of all kinds of things, and they all have social messages, and they're these little sort of cartoons that seem like these really just sort of nice little drawings, but they all have these powerful messages that pack a real punch. And I am so in love with this guy. He's amazing. And every drawing has a, a, you know, the Instagram comment area has a description and he's socially right in line with me. And at the end, there's always uh, a description of the drawing for people who might be visually impaired or whatever. I'm so in love with this, this Instagram
1: account. I yeah, can't I'm looking at edit. it right now. It's really, really cool. And obviously very popular with almost 60,000 followers.
0: Oh, he's got a huge, huge following. I don't know how I never heard of him before. He's British, I think. And it's just phenomenal. i am He's fantastic.
1: I'm going to so, click and follow right now. Good call. Yeah, there we
0: go. I got him a new follower already. Boom. So I will include a link to that in the show notes, drawings of dogs on Instagram. Check him out. He is awesome. So that's my something cool this week. So David Kauf, where can people find you aside from fake radio.net?
1: Well, they can certainly find me on my Website, davidcoff.com. All of the performances that I am in are listed on my website. All of the information about the curriculum that I teach to the students, pictures of me at all the workshops where I am teaching. Anything you want to know is there along with a way to get in touch
0: with me. And that's k-o-f-f.com. Yes. Correct. Awesome. Well, David, it's been such a delight to get to chat with you about improv and your story uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast and talk with me.
1: I am thrilled and honored I'm glad I got a chance to coax a little bit of information out about you as well <laughs> Now that I know you're you're also someone who's committed to performing improv I have even more uh, respect and love for you.
0: Ah thank you thanks so much. Well let's keep in touch and thanks again.
1: My pleasure Talk soon Talk soon.
0: That's it. That's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with David Koff. Let me know if you resonated and connect with me over on LinkedIn or Instagram. And to dive deeper and meet other creative, open-hearted, like-minded women from all over the world at every stage of the creative journey, join me in the Creative Sandbox community. Support, encourage, and learn from each other find inspiration every day in our online forum, which is not on Facebook, the distracty, distracty Facebook, but on a private mobile friendly network. And your membership includes my flagship seven-day e-course, Creative Sandbox 101, which is the course that inspired my book the Creative Sandbox way. And as a member, you'll get to participate in the live studio audience whenever I have podcast interviews like this one. And for a limited time, the membership is half off at just $10 a month. And you can check all of that out over at creativesandboxcommunity.com. That's creativesandboxcommunity.com. And I would love to welcome you inside. Also, if you would like to connect connect with me in person, you have two different opportunities. First, you can join me at the next Creative Sandbox Play Day, which is a half-day co-working retreat to come together with other creatives to get stuff done on your creative projects. Write or paint or knit or bead or draw or collage or whatever it is that you like to do creatively. And if you don't have a creative project, no problem. Just come and play with my art supplies because I always bring a bunch of art supplies with me. The next creative sandbox play day takes place in Palo Alto, California. Sorry if you're far away from that part of the world and it's, you know, a bit of a commute. It's on Sunday, April 21st from 9:45 a.m. to 2:30 p.m. and it's just $25. So, yeah. It's really not that expensive. All experience levels are welcome. And you can go to Creative Sandbox Play Day, D-A-Y dot com to sign up. That's Creative Sandbox Play Day dot com. And for a deeper dive, if you're ready to spend five days with me, check out Creative Sandbox Retreat. The spring retreat is May 29th through June 2nd. And the late summer fall retreat is September 11th through 15th. Both retreats are super intimate opportunities to really focus on your art in the community, in the company of other open-hearted, generous, truly wonderful, playful, really fun human beings. I lead creative catalyzing sessions every morning after breakfast, and we laugh a ton, and it's just really special. There's a bunch of info over at creativesandboxretreat.com. So check it out. And if it feels like your jam, I would love to have you. Early, early bird pricing for the spring retreat is only good through this Friday, March 29th. So don't delay. Sign up uh, in order to get the best pricing for the spring retreat in May. And meanwhile, if you're getting value out of this podcast, share it with a friend and, uh, take a moment, and leave a review. They, those reviews really do make a difference. If you don't know how to do that, I've got step-by-step instructions over at com slash iTunes hyphen review. And as always, if you email me and let me know that you left a review and how the podcast has made a difference in your own life, that's how you can apply to be considered for the listener spotlight which is how you can be featured on the podcast, just like David Koff was. We'll have a really fun, really relaxed conversation. And you can be on the podcast. And yeah, that's it. Until next time, thanks again for joining me. And go get creating! Bye. Bye. Subscribe Bye. at creativesandboxway.com slash podcast.